Good morning, everybody. Good to see all of you. Sort of. You're in the dark. Are they always in the dark? If you can put lights up, I'll be a happier person. Oh, see, I'm getting happier already. So I, got a, I heard Ken flipped you guys off just a few minutes ago. I'd like to be able to see if you're flipping me off. I, I got to see what's going on out here. So I've preached in a lot of places. I, I was thinking while we were singing, I've preached to thousands. I've preached to tens. Uh, I preached to chickens in Ukraine one time. We had an outdoor service, and literally the chickens were walking down the aisle, responding to the invitation that I didn't even give. And uh, so, anyhow, it's really good to be here. Um, it's an honor to be in your church. It's always an honor to open the Bible and think about the Lord. And if you're new to this whole Christian thing, trying to figure that out, it's really a fun ride. I did not grow up in the church. I was not raised in a Christian home. Uh, I began uh, my drinking career at 12 years old, just to get a head start on it. You know, I had the, tw- the two and the one backwards, just got to be 21, not where I grew up. Uh, and uh, then started a life of drugs and all that good stuff, which I think uh, my son tells me you vote on whether you should do that legally in Oregon uh, every single year. Um, In Indiana, we didn't wait for the vote. We voted with our behavior, and uh, in the midst of all that, God kind of reached down and rescued my life when I was 18 years old from a life of about six years of substance abuse at a whole variety of levels. And uh, we were singing a song this morning. I kind of want to, um, what's it, uh, one thing, well, I already forgot. Yeah, will you, can you throw those words up, Erica, for me? Um, Carolyn, Carolyn's got a little energy when she's doing the music thing, you know? Yeah, that's not bad. <clears throat> I'm from a Baptist church in Midwest America, okay? Um, we're part of the frozen chosen, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so it's good to have a little energy. Is that up here? Yeah, go to the slide that, about the, the love thing. Is that in this song? I hope I know what I'm talking about. I don't know. Luke said this was the song. Yeah, your love never gives up. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Do you have a Bible? Go to Romans chapter 8 for a second. I just want to throw a couple things at you, the sermon before the sermon which I always do back home, Um, this whole idea that there is a love available to any human being that never gives up on them. You may be sitting here this morning feeling very alienated in life, very distant from anything that could be encouraging. Who knows what you went through this week? You may have gone to the doctor and he sent you to the oncologist. Are you with me? Yeah, you may have come home to a spouse who said, I'm done. You may have visited the juvenile detention center because your teen decided uh, that uh, the laws in Oregon were optional and uh, they, they were arrested. And you have this overwhelming sense of, of, of being wiped out. In Romans chapter 8, Paul pulls this idea out and he says, um, verse 35, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He then gives a list, uh, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. It's an interesting list, isn't it? It's an autobiographical list. Paul could say something like this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No, I've been through tribulation. Um, how about distress? I've been distressed. Persecution? Been locked up in jail a number of times. Famine? I've been hungry. Naked? Yep, I've been naked. 
danger, the sword, none of these things will separate us. Drop down to verse 37. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now, what's the next slide in this song, Eric? Because I think I wanted it. Um, here is this... Um, I just had a weird thing come to my head I don't want to talk about, but you tap into this divine resource I thought uh, you don't want to hear about. On and on and on it goes. It overwhelms, it satisfies me. So I never, ever have to be afraid. One thing remains. Next slide, please. Your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on me. Isn't there a line about a debt in here somewhere? Can you get to that debt? My debt is paid. There's nothing that can separate my heart from your great love. Verse 37, and all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And all the what things? And all the pain, and all the agony, and all the distresses that life can bring us we're more than conquerors. Verse 38, for here's what I'm sure of, Paul writes, I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, powers or height or depth or any else Anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you've missed anything, because you're going to doze off while I'm speaking, I'm used to that. But before you do, don't miss the love of Christ in all this. That's why these people here in Bend gather in this school, sing these songs, throw their head back when they sing Jesus loves me with their eyes closed, and they just embrace the love of God because it never gives up. And it never, we never give in because it never gives up. And our debt is paid, and nothing can separate us. And I don't know about you, but I'm really grateful for that because I've done a lot of stuff that deserves to be separated. And there are not even any spiritual forces that exist that can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Now, you're all supposed to yell amen at that and do the way. That's a good stuff right there. Okay. All right, now on to the sermon. That was just warm up. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. I thought I'd start at the beginning and we'll work our way. I won't go all the way to Revelation, believe it or not. Um, in 1990, a missiologist named Lewis Bush coined a phrase. Uh, he called uh, a phrase called the 1040 box. And his concept was this that if you go to the equator on our globe, and you go between 10 and 40 degrees north of that equator, two-thirds of the people on the planet live in that box. If you go in that box, uh, you will find uh, three characteristics of most of the people who live in that box. Now, Japan's in that box, so they don't necessarily fit, but there are a lot of uh, developing countries, and if you go in that box, that 1040 box, uh, you will have three things that will be true. Number one, there's extreme poverty in that box. Number two, in that box, there is uh, not a very long life expectancy. The people do not live long. It might go back to number one, extreme poverty. Number three, the least amount of access to the message of Christianity is in that box. And if you go through that box and you can look it up and you want to do the Wikipedia thing, you can find, I don't know if you can trust Wikipedia, but it lists all the countries in that box and you'll be amazed at the countries in that box. The, the major religions of the world that are non-Christian are represented in the 1040 box. That would be Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, animists, and atheists. 
That's who you find in that box. Um, as uh, all of us who are men are prone to do, our wives help us get things right. Lewis's wife, Doris, said, I don't think you ought to call it the 1040 box. I think you ought to call it the 1040 opportunity. This is the place where the message of Christ needs to go with great emphasis. It was also the place where Christians were spending the least amount of their resources trying to influence for the gospel. Coined from that was an idea called the 1040 window, not box. The opportunity to take the gospel to a group of people who are the least likely to hear it, accept it, and receive it because of a variety of reasons, not the least of which was all their religions say we're wrong. And did you know that ours says they're wrong? Are you comfortable with saying that? I know we're in a little pluralistic world now where everybody's on their own path uh, getting to the same destination. That's very confusing for Jesus, who said stuff like, I'm the only way. The Jews didn't appreciate that because that's a pretty big swipe at Judaism. What about the temple? I'm the sacrifice. You with me? What about the tabernacle? I, that's me. And so in, in this box uh, exists all these people. Now, when I think about us, how many of us are ever going to go to that box? How many of us are ever going to walk through that window of 10 degrees uh, above the equator and 40 degrees between that? We're not going to go there, are we? And so I was thinking as I was uh, putting this message together, and it, it would be kind of cool for us to think about our lives in the same way. Who are the people that we come in contact with that have the least amount of influence of Christ on their lives? And so I, I made up a little title, and I called it the 9 to 5 window. Because that's where you leave the comfort of your Christianity and go exist in a culture that says, you're nuts. Your faith is offensive. Your standards are old-fashioned. We could go on and on, couldn't we? And so this morning, I really wanted to talk with you about how to have the workplace become a place of spiritual influence in your life. So we're going to start in Genesis, look at three different things about work, where it began, what's the problem with it, because, well, we don't dread Monday this week because you don't have to go to work, right? So Tuesday becomes Monday, and hump day is now Thursday, and it's just, you know, we count down till we don't have to work anymore, and we kind of, uh, we, we can't wait to get old so we don't have to work anymore, because we think retirement's going to be a really swell thing. And have you been to Florida? No, I get it. Uh, I'm a long ways. I've been to Florida. Let me tell you about the old people in Florida. They live in little metal boxes. They ride three-wheeled tricycles around. And they make the most amazing crafts out of two-liter bottles you have ever seen, <laughs> which are hanging from the front of their metal boxes or are attached to their three-wheeled bicycles. This sounds like a great way to spend the rest of your life, doesn't it? There's a reason for that. God designed us to be productive people. I'm going to suggest to you this morning the most amazing working machine on the planet is a human being. And nothing is even close to you in the design capacity to be creative, artistic, productive. 
Genesis chapter 2, if you would go there. And the genesis of work begins right here in, in the book of Genesis. And here's what the, the book of Genesis says, the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done. Here's the deal. Uh, work began and originated by God. He was the first worker. This work, he, he calls what he did in the creative process work. He gave it honor and dignity Three times in that passage, he defines what he did in making everything as work. If you go back to verse 31 of chapter 1, it says, And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? What's it say, class? It was sweet. God was delighting, are you ready? In his work. Is that possible? Is it possible that, that the the productivity of the labor of our hands could actually be something we delight in. God did. And the whole concept of work originated with the Creator, by the Creator, and one of the things He made was man in chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, and we'll come back to that in a minute. So this whole genesis of work, it is originated by God, and you'll notice, second, it is originated for man. Chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, the Lord God took man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So God creates this man, this Adam dude, and he says, Adam, I've got a job for you. Now, why is that significant? There has been no sin. There has been no fall. I want to suggest to you this morning that laboring with your hands is not a curse. Being productive with your, your intelligence, your strength, your creativity was not meant to be a curse. It was a privilege. It was, as an image bearer, something God gave to Adam to do before he ever messed up. You know how we do it with our kids, right? When they disobey, you give them a job to do. You've been bad. Go clean out the garage. Oh, man. And the whole time your child learns what? Work is punishment. It's also a way for dad to get the garage clean. Because dad can always find something the kid did wrong, which then, wait, that's another story. We're not here to talk about parenting. So this idea of work originates with God. He creates it, and he gives man two responsibilities. Now go back to chapter 1, verse 26 and 20 to 28. And man loves these responsibilities, by the way. Here's what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image, verse 26 of Genesis 1, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, of the birds of the heavens, over livestock, and over uh, all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, verse 28. And God blessed them, and here's job number one. Be fruitful and multiply. Adam and Eve, go make babies. Sweet. 
Now, that's a job that mankind has delighted in from the beginning, hasn't he? And we've been doing a pretty swell job filling the earth with little people-type folks. And, and, and uh, you know, the whole sex thing then, here it is, before curse, before fall, it is man's responsibility to make sure that there are more men. That's job one. No amen on that? Yeah, there you go. Hey, what were the odds that it was going to be a man that yelled amen? Uh, seriously? Can I tell you one of my great pastor stories? I'm going through the book of 1 Corinthians. I get to chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians. If you don't know your Bible, it's okay. But in the first four verses there, it basically says this in a nutshell. If you're a married person, sex ought to be a regular part of your life. So I'm on the platform giving it all. I, sex ought to be a regular part of your life. And I'm done. I'm done. And people come down and they either yell at me or say hi or whatever. So this guy comes down. He goes, Pastor, I have a question. And you know what the question is going to be, right, men? How regular is regular? It's a great question. Now, here's the great part of the story. The guy was 84 years old. <laughs> I just hugged him. I didn't even, I love you, man. Are you kidding me? 84 and you want to know how regular, regular? Way to go. Anyhow, um, at the beginning, he gives them a job to do, go make babies. Second job, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, everything that moves on the ground. And, and God said, behold, I've given to you every plant seed, yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree of the seed, and you shall have them for food. And so the second thing, God, you're in charge of earth for me. You are my vice regent. You are the one that I have made to oversee all this thing. That's why you never go to a zoo full of people run by monkeys, right? Monkeys weren't given the job of dominion. But you can go to a zoo filled with monkeys run by people. And we have been given those two jobs. So the whole idea of work started with God, it originated with him. He then passed it on to man, and it was given to man, and all of this is before the curse. By the way, can I make uh, two uh, uh, tangential uh, uh, statements about this whole thing? Uh, these have nothing to do with the message. These at our church at home, when I go on a tangent, is everybody's favorite moment of the sermon, because it's where I always get in trouble. And people come to our church just to watch the train wreck. They just, they don't know which ditch I'm going to drive it in. They just can't wait to see where it goes and if I can get out once I dig it in there. Two interesting things about uh, creation versus evolution um, that I want to throw at you just for you to, to, to ponder. And, and I realize I'm in the Northwest and I'm not sure what that means if there's more evolution or creation out here. Um, yesterday I, I, I played golf uh, with the two Oregonians. Is that the right word? Oregonian? And um, the, the golf pro meets us at the first tee. It's kind of a fancy place. We're playing. And, and we get down the fairway. We all hit our shots, and the golf pro goes the other way. We get down the fairway, and the one guy's barefoot. And I thought, well, that's curious. <laughs> and he played. I mean, when, he's hitting the ball in the desert. He's out in the desert in his bare feet. He, 
He doesn't, he walk. I'm like, what? I don't get it. I mean, I'm from Indiana. Shoes, I mean, my in-laws are from Hazard, Kentucky, and they don't wear shoes there, but, um, you know, maybe there's something to Oregon and Kentucky have some connection that I don't know. Finally, in the 17th hole, I said, man, I got to ask. I said, what's the deal with the bare feet? He goes, I hate shoes. He says, I never wear shoes. I said, oh. And then I went, oh, yeah, I'm in Oregon. Oregon, Oregon, no shoes. Lots of flip-flops, though, in Oregon. I don't like toes very much. Okay, here's my two tangents. That was a third tangent that had nothing to do with this. Two creation ideas. God made everything, right? And it, as you go through the, the first chapter, I won't, I won't drag you through it, but there's evening, there's morning, there's day one. He says it's good. There's evening, morning, day two, it's good, and so on all the way to day seven, which he rests. God didn't rest because he was tired. Uh, he's omnipotent. He doesn't get exhausted. Nothing's too hard for him. Why the seven days? What up with that? Uh, Nahum Sarna is a Jewish scholar, wrote a commentary in the book of Genesis. He pointed something I hadn't thought of before. The concept of a week is the only division of time that has no ties to astronomy. How do you know when a day has begun and ended? The sun goes up, the sun goes down. It's a day. How do you know when a month has ended? The moon does its thing, whatever that is. I'm no scientist. And you can track the days and the month, and you have, you have a month. How do you know the years you count? The, but what is the concept of a week? Where did it come from? It has no astronomy background to it. It's not like there's a planet that hangs out there for three days and then goes down the last four, right? So the, what, here's what I think happened. What God did, and, and we always ask the question, is it possible that God could have created everything in seven days? I think we're asking the wrong question. Here's the question I have. What took him so long? Honest. You read what the Bible says about God. Do you think he could have done it like in a nanosecond? It, it says in Genesis 1, he created out of nothing and he spoke it into being. How much effort do you think that really took for him? Couldn't he have just spoken all six things into presence at one time and gotten it over with? Couldn't we have had a one-day work week and then a day of rest? <laughs> How sweet would that have been? And there's a reason why he didn't do that, by the way. God created a rhythm of time. He wound the clock to his created order. He put within that creative order, be productive for six days and never forget me on the seventh. Be productive for six days and never forget me on the seventh. This is a holy day, don't forget me. The rest of the time, I want you to work. I want you to be fulfilled. I want you to, to be all that I made you to be at that moment. And so that's uh, one, one tangent. Um, the other thing we always hear in the evolution creation discussion is that man's been around for millions and millions and millions of years. You know, he used to drag his knuckles on the ground and then he got them up to about his knees. And uh, eventually, true story, I saw it on the History Channel, so that has to be true, right? The reason man stood up is because the grass grew too tall, and when he fell, when he came down out of the tree, he couldn't see, so he stood up to see over the grass. That was on the History Channel. I'm not making that up. I have a question for people who think men have been here for millions of years. What the heck were they doing? 
you go back 100 years, my mom's 93. She lives with us. It's really interesting to talk to her. My mom was 30 years old before she had electricity in her home, 30 years old before she ever had a telephone. I know young people, that's really hard. I mean, uh, can you imagine life without a cell phone and, and being able to text? Uh, my mom has never sent a text in her life and never will. In her lifetime, planes were invented, television was invented, computers were invented, the internet was thought up. That happened in 100 years. Can you please tell me what they were doing for millions of years, walking around dragging their knuckles on the ground? Were they just walking around going, ugh? And it took them like 20 million years to figure out, uh, means I got to go or something? <laughs> I want to suggest to you that when God created man, he put such potential in every single human being. There's no way we could have lived here a million years and not being creative, productive, and diligent. We're made to be that way. Enough with the tangents. We've got to keep moving. You guys are slowing me down. <laughs> now, here's the problem with work. In chapter 2, um, verse 15, we saw that God told Adam he had a job to do. He took the man, put him in the garden, told him to work and keep it. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat you shall surely die. And so there was a restriction there was, if I can use this term, there was law in the garden. There was a rule. You could do anything you want but that. Which, of course, if you tell a human being you can do anything you want but that, the only thing a human being thinks about is that. And uh, so how long was, were Adam and Eve in the garden before they actually went to have lunch at the tree? I don't know. A couple hours, maybe. It might not have been very long, you think? I mean, when I look at myself, I think, you told me I can't have fruit from that tree? Well, that's the only tree I want to eat dinner from if that's what I'm not allowed to do. But maybe that's the fall in me. I, I, I don't know. But in chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, they do exactly what God told them not to do. And uh, the woman saw the tree, verse 6, that it was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And there's the whole process of sinful behavior in a nutshell in verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. You see something, you desire something, you take something, and then you include someone else in your, in your folly. And that's what Eve did. And the eyes of them were both open when that happened, and they were both naked, and they sewed leaves together, and uh, they made themselves loincloths. And so here, here's the deal. They've been walking around. They've been naked. They've been happy being naked. Nobody knew they were naked. It was just them. Everything was good. All of a sudden, there's a conscious... That, that comes in a selfness that had never been before. And Adam and Eve are now caught up in being Adam and Eve. Prior to that, they were probably very selfless, caring, so on. They didn't really think about themselves all that much. All of a sudden, God says, you'll know the, knowledge of the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. What had they known before they had eaten? They had only known good. What was God preventing? What was God's rule keeping them from? Evil. That is a good overriding uh, uh, principle as you live your Christian faith. If God asks you to not do something, he's not trying to kill your joy. He's trying to prevent you to go from evil. If he tells you to do something, he's trying to give you delight in him and to protect you from evil. Follow the laws that he lays down for us. And it's very difficult for us because we're very opinionated about 
our laws and what we want to do with ourselves. Adam and Eve were just like that. So uh, they heard the sound of the Lord, verse 8, walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves. We have a little theme now in their lives, don't we? We have gone from, from uh, total transparency to what? We're hiding everywhere we go. They hid from each other. They're hiding from God. They're alienated. God called out to the man and said, where are you? He didn't ask that because he didn't know. It's not like God goes, I, I don't know what happened to him. I lost, I, I lost track of the two people I made. I was, turned to the Holy Spirit. Was it your day to watch them? I, I... No, that wasn't it. He's making a point, and he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Who told you you were naked, God said. Have you eaten of the tree I commanded you not to eat like God didn't know? And what did the man say? It was the woman. We go from hiding to blaming. Not only is he blaming the woman, he's blaming what it was the woman that you gave me. You stink as a god. I was happy with Lassie, and you brought me a woman. He wasn't happy with Lassie, but that's another sermon for another day. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, It was the snake. See what happened to humanity? All of a sudden, everything that had been made that was beautiful and harmonious is now in upheaval. And man has created this problem by himself. He is now self-centered, filled with shame, and has the consequences of God that are about to come to him. Chapter 3, keep going. To the woman, he said in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. What just happened to the first job? What was the first job, class? I don't know. That was a long time ago, you said. What was the first job? Make some babies. Guess what happened when sin took place? Man's relationship to his responsibility and work became complicated. And before epiduros, ladies, yikes. We had four. We had no epiduros. Yikes. And my wife says, you have no reason to even speak on that issue. You know nothing. <laughs> Have you ever heard of Carol Burnett? She's an old lady. You can, you can Google her. She said, if a man wants to understand what it's like to have a child, he should grab his top lip and stretch it over the top of his head, and then he'll know what it's like to have a baby. Somehow, prior to this, the whole plan was for painless childbirth. I would, that would have been cool. Maybe there was a divine epidural that was going to happen. I don't know. But now, job number one has been contaminated and it becomes difficult. Number two, verse 17 to Adam, he said, Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed be the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground on which you are taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What's job two? Dominion and take care of the earth. And guess what happened to that job? It just got complicated. This amazing uh, a function that God had given to man has now been corrupted. 
And man is in a position where he's going to get thorns and thistles instead of corn and tomatoes. And so man's relationship to his work changed greatly. I meant to bring a book, so I'll pretend I'm holding it up. I wanted to recommend it to you. It's written by Timothy Keller. I don't know if you've heard of Timothy Keller. Uh, it's a red book, it's about, and it's called Every Good Endeavor. If you want to read more on this topic, Mr. Keller does a brilliant job. It's really one of the better books by him that I've read in a while, and, and I highly recommend it. Timothy Keller, Every Good Endeavor, and he'll deal with this whole concept of work at a much greater level than I am. And this whole issue, he has a whole section of the book on thorns and thistles of the workplace. I can't go into all of those, but can I at least highlight a couple that are here? There's going to be fruitlessness. You're going to plant some things and it's not going to work out. Have you ever experienced that in your work life? There's going to be some failures. You're going to try a new endeavor and it's just not going to fly. You heard of that? Experienced that? Which creates great frustration in your life, right? Because you were designed to be creative and diligent and productive. And when productivity doesn't happen, it tears at the fabric of who you are. This may be one of the great tragedies of the whole retirement mentality, seriously. We take these people with all the experience and shove them down in metal coops in Florida and we say, live, just don't talk to us anymore. We know you can't hear us. Here's a two-liter bottle. Do something with it. I've got more where that came from. And I think people die for lack of productivity in their own lives because we were built to produce. And now our productivity is difficult. One little sliver of hope in the midst of the passage, though, before I move on. Did you notice what he said? Because you listened to the voice of your wife, which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall what? What's the next word say, class? You guys following along with me? I'm just reading to myself. In pain you shall eat of it. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat. It's not a total failure. There's still a chance to be productive. It's just filled with frustration, fruitlessness, failures, but it's still available. So you go to college and you exercise your mind and you, uh, uh, in, in, in your mind, you grow and expand yourself so you can get a great career. And what happens to most college people? They come out, go in their career and go, I don't want to do this. I'm going to go live in my mom's basement. I hear an amen from the parents that the boomerang children are coming back. Yeah, I, well, I, I better leave that one alone. My family's in the room. Okay. So, we have this design for work that's given, and now we have this problem for work that we created and that we live with every single day. And if you'll notice in the passage, work now becomes labor. Now I'm sweating. Now I'm in pain. Now I can't wait for the weekend anymore. 
because I'm sick of it. Now, I want to do a little case study for you in the New Testament. I'm going to flash forward several thousand years to the book of 2 Thessalonians. And I want to give you a redemptive picture of what I just shared. I'm now done with my introduction, and now we're on to the real message. You ready? 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, this uh, little uh, struggling church um, in present-day Turkey uh, is trying to get their feet going, and there are three problems that they encounter in this church. There is an incredible incredible amount of outside persecution going on. A lot of times we want to recapture the, the first century church. They had it tough, you guys. It wasn't easy on that. Their families disowned them. They weren't allowed to trade in the marketplace. Uh, it, it became a communal existence because it had to for survival. There's a whole bunch of stuff. Second, bad theology had gotten into this church, and that theology said, the Lord's already come. You missed him. Well, what hope do I have? The third problem is, and I think probably connected to the first two this ongoing persecution, this difficulty. You know, I just share with you a little bit about the love of God will help you through all things. Um, I didn't say that the love of God won't take you into distresses and tribulations. I just said it will be there with you in them. Because if you follow Christ, inevitably someone is going to despise you if you're really following. It's okay. It's just an earth thing. And if they take your life, I, I, I love this in 2 Timothy, where Paul's ready to die. And he says, the time of my departure is at hand. Don't you love that? What's a departure? When I think of departure, we flew in here. We had such a good time in Detroit. We stayed because the plane refused to leave the ground. Uh, it's always good when the pilot comes up, we're having, uh, we're having some mechanical problems. We don't know if it's a half-hour fix or a two-hour fix. And an hour later, he goes, I think it's going to be more like a two-hour fix. So we're going to have you leave the plane. Sweet. I love Detroit. I'm supposed to go to Redmond, Oregon to see my son. I'm in Detroit. It's such a happy time. I have no idea why I was telling you that story. I just thought you should know. Second Thessalonians chapter 3. We commend you, brothers, verse 6, in the name of our Lord Jesus, that you keep away from any brothers walking in idleness, not in according with the tradition you receive from us. What was the tradition you received from us? The tradition you received from us is that you should be a hardworking person. This person's doing nothing. They're on self-proclaimed welfare. It's not that they can't work. They won't work. These are church folk. These are the ones who are have a higher calling in their lives, who should excel at all the things. They should be uh, reconnected to their creator through Christ. And by that reconnection, their, their efforts in the workplace should be dynamic. And these guys are sitting on the rear end saying, feed me. And Paul writes to them and he, he, he says, listen, this is a Christ thing. This is a spiritual issue. How you approach your work is a spiritual issue. You'll notice, we command you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Go to Colossians chapter 3. I'll come back here very quickly. Colossians chapter 3. It's a couple pages back. Or a couple taps on your iPad if you have one of those bad boys. Verse 23 of Colossians 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Uh, When I was in college, I worked construction to help pay the bills. And um, we had just finished building a little duplex in Florida, by the way. And um, my job was to do final site cleanup, which meant push the broom down the driveway, uh, the sidewalk in front, make sure. And I, was, I don't know what I was thinking about. You know, I don't know if you've ever pushed a broom before, but it's kind of mindless work. You, you with me? Any of you ever do mindless work? The cool thing about mindless work is you kind of think about other stuff. So I'm sitting there thinking I was really a spiritual uh, 20 kid, 20 year old. I wonder how I'd sweep this sidewalk if Jesus asked me to do it. (laughs) And then I thought, he did ask me to do it. (laughs) Get the idea? Our labor in the workplace is to be done heartily as unto the Lord. We shouldn't be the slugs of our company. In this sense, Paul writes these guys and goes, listen, Christ has redeemed work for you again. He's given purpose to it again. He's given you a chance again, and you're blowing it by sitting on your butts, doing nothing, expecting someone to take care of you. And so he, he calls them, go back to Second Thessalonians, he calls them then to what he did. And he gives three purposes, and I will call them three redemptive purposes for the workplace out of his own life. Here are three things uh, Keller in his book uh, kind of cataloged um, the years of Christian scholarship, and he had about eight reasons Uh, purposes for work for the life of a Christian. I'm just going to grab three of them for you, and they're they're not really that complicated. Here's the first one, uh, letter A, to provide for material needs. So Paul writes to him, and he says, uh, you yourselves know that you ought to imitate us, verse 7, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Down to verse 10, for even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if you're not willing to work, you shouldn't eat. What's the point? The point is that work is productive and it takes care of you and you should rise up in the name of Christ and say, I am going to make sure my family's cared for. We've turned work into a very self-centered thing, haven't we? I will not do a job that doesn't bring me personal fulfillment. Can I change that phrase? Say it like this, I will not do a job that does not provide food. Do the job you don't like while you're looking for the job you do like. Young people, just work. It's okay. Do you have Walmart in Oregon? You do? Okay. I didn't know. That's like the plague, though. The blue plague, it's all over the world, right? Uh, you know, if you have to stand at the door in one of those little blue vests and say, thanks for coming to Walmart, thanks for coming to Walmart, and they give you a little uh, rubber thing to stand on to help your knees, thanks for coming to Walmart. And at the end of the day, they give you money for doing that, and you go home and feed yourself for that, 
You just honored God. You honored God by more by doing that than sitting in your house, plucking away at helpwanted.com, looking for the absolute perfect position in life. Oh, I don't want to do that. I would never dig a hole. I have cleaned restrooms. You ready? In public parks for a job. That was evil. I, I want you to know I am scarred from that experience too. I, I, it, the very most basic fundamental thing is you work to provide for material needs. Don't get wants and needs confused. Make all you can. Be very productive and never forget to be generous with what you make. There are people who are less fortunate, aren't there? There are people who can't work There are people who are in difficult situations. Find them, help them, love them with your productivity. In so doing, your nine to five job is a window, isn't it? Why are you helping me? You don't have to. I just want to. Wesley used to say, make all you can. Save all you can and give away all you can. Be careful getting hung up on 10%. Some of you ought to be given 25, 30%. I can say that. I'm not in my own church. (laughs) Felt so good to say that. I I feel so cleansed by making that. You're welcome, Ken. (laughs) Ken couldn't say that to you, even though it's true. We don't just create more wealth to consume more stuff. And we don't have time to go to the passage, but if you want to read about it, you can go to 2 Timothy chapter 6, right at the end of that thing, like uh, 17, 18, 19, 20, right in there. Be generous, friends. Know the delight of giving stuff away. Hold your stuff like this. This is God's economic plan. You ready? It's this, an open hand. If you wrap your hands around your stuff, he can't fill your hands with the next thing. If you hold your hands like this and give your stuff away, he's liable to put more stuff in there for you to give away. By the way, total off another tangent. I don't even know who y'all are, but you've been so kind to my son here. Thank you for taking care of him and watching over him. He needs you. His parents are 3,000 miles away trying to figure out what the heck's going on in his life. So we appreciate Antioch and and their kindness to Luke. He's getting married, by the way. Did y'all know? Help him out, will you? Help Lauren out too. She's marrying him. We know all about him. Uh, Letter B, here's the second purpose of work, to provide an example to others. Paul comes alongside. He says, uh, you know, uh, verse 7, yourselves that you might ought to imitate us because we're not idle when we're with you. Um, Verse 11, we hear that some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Verse 10, when we're with you, we gave you this command. So I set an example for you. Here's here's what I think, and this is one of your nine-to-five window opportunities. It seems to me if you're working heartily for the Lord, no matter what your job is, no matter what your company is, that the people in the workplace environment 
ought to be a little bit dumbfounded by you. Why, why do you give such great effort? Why do you never complain? Why? Get the idea? I, I uh, loaded semis for a while. I was at work... Uh, I was what was called a casual loader for roadway trucking, and I was not a teamster, but the teamsters ran the place. Wow. When Guido showed up to collect the dues, which I had to pay, I was sure I was going to die because they looked like mafia dudes. It was really interesting. But in, in that place, a 15-minute break was a 45-minute break. An hour lunch or a half an hour lunch was an hour lunch. And you have a, an ethical dilemma as a follower of Christ. I agreed to take a 15-minute break every four hours. Do I turn that into a 45-minute break or do I take a 15-minute break? If you leave the break room and leave every other worker in there and you're out there working on the trucks, what happens to you? Hmm? You're weird. Get used to being weird. Get used to being odd. The uniqueness of Christ in your life will shine in the window of your workplace because you do things differently. You gave up the deal because of your integrity. It may cost you your job to, live, to work as Christ would have you work. Are you ready for that? Paul comes along and says, you need to follow our example. We're, we're showing you what to do. And if you look in the passage... He, he, he gives three examples. You yourselves know you ought to imitate us because we're not idle one with you, verse uh, 8. But we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. Uh, we toil and labor and work night and day that we might not be a burden to you. First, they worked diligently. They toiled. They labored. Second, they worked consistently night and day. They kept giving it their all. Verse 9, it was not because we didn't have the right to receive stuff from you, but we gave an example to you. They worked willingly. They were diligent, they were consistent, and they were willing in their efforts. And this is the example we left behind for you. Follow it. In so doing, you'll provide for your family. In so doing, you will scream Jesus to your workers. And they will not know what to do with you. The third reason that uh, is purpose of work is to provide an antidote to foolish living. You'll notice in the passage, verse 11 and 12, uh, we hear that some of you are walking in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Not busy, but busy bodies. You're all up in everybody's business. You're all up in other people's lives. We call it Facebook. <laughs> I... I I, I think you can redeem Facebook. I'm not positive, but I think you can. No? Can't be done. Uh, a, a, a gal here says that can't be done. We can't redeem Facebook. Well, then maybe Twitter. You can tweet away. I, I don't know. I'm just saying you get up all in other people's business. Uh, we also call it retirement. I've kind of made my peace with that with you today. The antidote for foolish living is to be productive with your life. If you do not work hard and give yourself to the productivity that God called you to, you will fill your life with something else and you won't like what it is and neither will your friends. 
1994, Chuck Colson, who recently passed away, and Jack Eckerd, who you've probably never heard of. Jack Eckerd was a businessman in Florida. Um, he owned a chain of uh, drugstores all across the South United States. Wrote a book together titled, Why America Doesn't Work. In that book, they gave a quote from Augustine that says this, To work is to pray. What do you think? I think in God's economy, it is a sacred thing to hold a shovel as much as it is to hold a scalpel. I think in God's economy, it is a sacred thing to be tired at the end of a day because you gave effort in the workplace. To work is to pray. Let's pray nine to five, day after day, wherever we are planted for him. Will you pray with me now? Father, thanks. Um, thanks for your love and grace. Lord, it is the meager offering I give to you this morning with this message. I can only ask that you would take the words that you see fit to sear on people's souls today that those words would be lasting. That this would not be a fly-by work of your spirit, but a defining moment. That your word would have the impact that you intended it to have. Thanks for forgiving all my sins and giving me this opportunity to speak. I pray for this church. I pray for Antioch that it might rise up and bend Oregon and be counted as Christ followers, even being known as weird if necessary. I pray for these dear friends who go to the workplace on Tuesday and ask that you give them a refreshed purposefulness for whatever they do. May they find you in their nine-to-five window, and may they shine you in their nine-to-five. Thanks for hearing this prayer. Thanks for loving us, Father. That love that knows no end. We're really grateful. Amen.